Hey, good morning. Good morning. Hey, we're welcoming uh, Ampton Blinn and Roan County this morning. Good morning to y'all. And then a special good morning down in Bearden. Uh, this weekend, we're welcoming a new campus pastor in Bearden. Jeremy, good morning. Good morning to you. Glad you and Stephanie are with us. Uh, let's celebrate this. What long time that we've been waiting, so we're excited. Uh, new campus pastor down in Bearden, and that means that Tim Bubar is going to finally be able to fully step into the role of discipleship pastor for us, so we're, we are thrilled for that, and the focus of his role is how are we making disciples here and there. What do we mean is how are we making disciples here in East Tennessee and also in partnerships around the world, and so he's going to be stepping into that. In fact, in preparation for that, last week, Tim and I had the opportunity to be in Berlin, Germany. And for those of you who don't know, uh, we're part of uh, the team, uh, partnership with the team there in Berlin through Reach Global. Reach Global is the international mission of the Evangelical Free Church of America, of which we are one. And the, the team there, uh, we've been with them ever since the team began. So I know it was more than 12 years ago. I don't know the exact number. I just know as long as I've been around, we've been part of that. And I, over the last 10 years, that team has gone from three to more than 20 people. And someone that we've sent, Aaron Birchfield, is actually now the team leader there. Uh, he and his wife, Denise, both work with Reach Global. Their two youngest kids are with them there in Berlin. And then you'll remember last year, we sent Tierra Coolis there. Uh, Tierra had been on staff here for uh, three years, and now she's been there for a year. So we got to, to see them, and that was amazing. But that's not what I want to tell you about. I want to tell you about a conversation that, that we had with uh, a woman who's been on staff there for a little while. And she was talking about how she ended up on that team. She had been in Europe for a couple years on, on a short-term kind of thing, and she was looking to go long-term, and she had visited multiple teams with Reach Global there in Europe. And as she visited each one of these teams, she noticed that, that those teams talked about how dark the city was where they existed. They talked about how, they, the way that they talked about people was uh, how broken they were, how, how dark it was, how difficult it was. And then she went to Berlin. And Berlin, that team talked about the potential, the potential of people, the potential of the city. If, if, if God were to redeem the people, that that city had so much potential for, for God's glory, that the people of the city, she's like, they talked about the people like they actually loved them. They talked about the city like they loved it. They loved the city. And I said, wow, this is what we've ta been talking about at Two Rivers Church over, over the last year. We've been talking about how do we ever reach people we hate? <laughs> and yet, Christians in North America talk about people like they hate people. The, the very people who are the mission of God, we talk about like they're, 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 oh, how could we possibly, and those people are terrible, and no, they're the mission of God. It's why we're here. Those people who hit your very last nerve, that's the person. She's like, yeah, it's totally different. And yeah, is it dark? Yeah. Is it, is it troubling? Yeah. Is, is there a lot of adversity out there? Absolutely. And yet... Think of the potential that's there in people if Christ were to redeem them. You're like, what does this have to do with the book of Revelation? We're in a series on Revelation. What does this have to do with it? Everything and everything of how we view the book of Revelation. 
So we've started this series every week. We've talked about a question. If you're new around here, we're in the book of Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 8. Um, we, we've, every week, we begin with this question, what do I do with this book? Because that's the motivation. Out of this series, we hope that you would go, the book of Revelation is not a book to be avoided. It's a book to run to. It's not a book that I should run from. Uh, that I have a basic understanding of the book of Revelation and how to approach the book of Revelation in order that would be in alignment with the purpose of the book. The goal of Revelation is that we would be encouraged as God's master plan is in full motion. Well, God is really in control of everything and that his master plan is in motion, even when it looks like God has abandoned the scene, even when it looks like God isn't anywhere to be found, even in those places that we would call, oh, it's a deep, dark place, godless, terrible, God is still at work there. And we often put God in this teeny little box and say, God's only associated with the happy, good stuff, but that is not the God of scriptures. He's involved in all the stuff. He's involved in all the things. Everything that's going on in the world, God is active in that. So as we, as we look to the book of Revelation, our hope is that you would be inspired to engage the book, not to run from it. And part of it is that we would approach the book of Revelation with a solid biblical foundation and understanding of how we approach the scriptures. There's a big fancy word out there in theological studies. The word is hermeneutics. You don't have to remember that word at all, but it's how we approach the scriptures in a disciplined way. How do we approach the scriptures through a grid that doesn't just, hey, the, the Bible can mean whatever it means to you, and the Bible can mean whatever it means to you. No, the Bible means what it means. How it applies to us may be different, but, but it means what it means. So this week, I went back, and I, and I reviewed some stuff. I've had this book for a long time. The, the book is called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. In fact, at one point, uh, Dave Nichols and I were talking about this book, and it's like the gold standard out there in theological education. It's the gold standard of how we approach the scriptures to understand them within the right framework. And in that book, the authors write that, that apocalypses, apocalyptic literature, in general, and the revelation in particular, seldom intend to give a detailed chronological account of the future. Their message tends to transcend this kind of concern. John's larger concern is that despite appearances, God is in control of history and the church. If you walk away from the book of Revelation and you miss the fact that God is in control, everything that's working out, God is working in a trajectory for the glory of Jesus that, that for all time that people would declare his praise, you've missed the point of the book. And often what we do is we try it and make it up into the chronology of when will events happen. In fact, if we approach the book of Revelation sequentially, in fact, last week you heard about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They're not coming in an order. It's not like you're going to get the first one, the second one, the third one, the fourth one, the way that it appears in the vision. That's not the point of it. It's a general trend of humanity. This is what's going to happen over time. And every generation has been able to align events in their generation to, to events that are occurring in the book of Revelation. And we're supposed to be able to do that. 
For those of you who are alive in the 70s, and, and as we think about now, and we think about what's going on in our world, and there's rapid inflation, and get people saying, don't you, don't you see, don't you think, like, one world government, rapid inflation, all these things are happening. Doesn't this align with the scripture? I was like, yeah, every generation can do that. Back in the 70s, I only know it through pictures, there were gas lines. <laughs> the Carter administration had rapid inflation. Right? I mean, it was everyone at the time. Russia! Don't you know? These are the end days in the 70s, 80s, 90s. 9-11. Don't you know? These are the last days. Yeah, could be. The days in which we live. Don't you know? These are the last. Yes, they are. These are the last days. Be encouraged. Dig deeper into the book of Revelation and be encouraged. When you look at the balance of your 401k and it's half of what it was... Be encouraged. <laughs> as we dig in this weekend, here's what we're reminded, that as a follower of Jesus, my part is to demonstrate the good news of the kingdom of God. Over the past couple weeks, we, we were in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and there we saw that Jesus is worthy of our worship. No doubt about it. Jesus is worthy of our worship because Jesus is the creator, and he's also the redeemer. Not only did Jesus create you to be in relationship with God, he created you to be a person who's redeemed by him, bought back, that you would belong to him, that you would be a person, the scriptures say in Titus, zealous to do the stuff he's prepared for you to do. That's good news. He's worthy of our worship. And then last week, and not only is he worthy of our worship, he's also worthy to be the judge of the world. And a lot of us would sit back and go, yeah, Jesus judged the world. They deserve it. The world is evil and corrupt and bad. They deserve your judgment. Lord Jesus, come now. And we'd be right. And yet, We'd be missing it along the way. Because if Jesus is worthy to judge the world, he's also worthy to judge me. Jesus is worthy to judge me. Now, I don't know about you, but I have embraced the don't judge me American culture. Don't judge me. Do not judge me. Don't judge the way I talk. Don't judge the way I dress. Don't judge the way I act. Don't judge my gray hair, okay? Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Don't, I, 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 don't do it. And so it's hard for us as people living in our culture to embrace this idea that there is someone absolutely to judge everything about us. What we say, what we do, how we act, what, what we give our time to, what we give our talent to, what we give our treasure to. There's one who's absolutely worthy. It's the same one who's worthy of our worship, and his name is Jesus. And so that message last week wasn't just for the person that you thought needed to see it. It was for you. It was for you to go, oh, how then do we live and lie to the truth that Jesus is the judge of the world? This is actually really good news to those who have new life in Christ. The fact that Jesus is worthy of our worship and that Jesus is worthy to judge us, it's really good news because we don't have to be the judge. Jesus is the judge. You don't have to be. Took that burden off you. You don't have to be the judge. So what is your part as a follower of Jesus? Here's the thing to, to constantly remember. My part is to demonstrate the good news of the kingdom of God. What's your part? To demonstrate the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus' part is to judge. Your part is to demonstrate the good news of the kingdom of God. 
What's the good news of the kingdom of God? That, that the lion of the tribe of Judah from the Old Testament it became the lamb who exchanged his life for the life that, that you now have a new life in him. The new life that you have in Christ. He traded his life in order that you could have life. That, that his blood paid for your sin in order that you could live an entirely new life. Not just someday in a real place called heaven, but today as you follow him. This is the good news. You get to participate in the kingdom of God. In Revelation chapter 8, it says, in, in the opening of this verse, it says, when the lamb opened the seventh seal. So remember last week there was a scroll, one scroll, seven seals, six of them were opened, then the seventh one gets opened. It says, when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silent in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and, the seven, tr- and seven trumpets were given to them. What's going to follow now, we're, we're going to give some summary. And here's the thing, it's true, just going to be throughout the book of Revelation. If you give just a little bit, you're going to get a lot more out of it. This week, there's going to be an encouragement if, if you look at uh, the glossary on the bottom of your notes page there. The encouragement is that you would go watch a, a review of the, the beginning part, the first half of the book of Revelation, which we're, we're bringing to an end this week, that you would go back. We didn't give it to you at the beginning. We're giving it as a review in order that you could begin to get your mind around the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation is challenging. If you feel like this has been difficult, it's because it's difficult. You know who else feels like this is difficult? Every single one of us on the teaching team. Every single one of us is like, this is hard. I've never worked so hard. Like, this is mind-bending stuff. Some of you are like, well, you know, digging ditches is harder. It's mind-bending. I will say this. I've never had to work harder mentally than in this series. And so if you feel like this is challenging, welcome to the club. This is challenging stuff. Because we're not used to it. It's not how we think. It's not how we are linear kinds of people. We tell stories in a linear kind of way. And so here what we see is the scene gets set multiple kinds of ways. And there's also a reason that we're focusing on the big picture along the way. We could come back and do a 60-month series on the details, but, but for this series, we're focusing on what do we do with this book, and we're looking at the big picture. And so we come to this next set of three divine judgments. The first set was last week in the seven seals. The, this week, we're looking at these seven trumpets, and then in two weeks will be the next set of three divine judgments in the seven bowls. So here we are. That these, these messengers from God, they're given these trumpets. And what are trumpets? Well, these are God's chosen instrument to, to proclaim what? Multiple things throughout the scriptures that are used to, to proclaim the coronation of a king. They're used to proclaim uh, worship. They're, they're used to make announcements. And so this is God coming and making a declaration. And what follows in the first Four trumpets that you're going to read about this week. And the first four trumpets are a reflection of what happened in Egypt as the children of Israel cried out to God in prayer. God responded, how? He sent Moses back to the children of Israel in Egypt along with ten plagues. And that's why as you look at week uh, day one and live it out this week, as you go to Monday and you're live it out, it's why you're going to go to the book of Exodus. 
Because if we don't understand the, what happened in the book of Exodus and as the children of Israel look to leave and the ten plagues that God brought, we don't see the allusions to it in these first four trumpets, which they're supposed to be allusions to the, the plagues that happened to the children of Israel, only amplified. We could say on steroids. The plagues that you're going to read about, they, they happened in, in a very specific location to a smaller group of people. Yeah, it was all of Egypt, but it was just Egypt. Here now, it's magnified to this is going to happen to the world. And what we see is that the response that God has to the prayers of the people, the, the martyrs that we saw last week in chapter 6, that as they cried out in prayer, this is now the answer that God gives them. He's going to be like, okay, it's, we're now going to release the, the judgment that I have on people. And so there's going to be the first four trumpets, okay? The first trumpet blast, hail, fire, uh, mixed with blood. It's scary stuff. It's a reflection that you're going to see of, of the plague that's found in uh, Exodus chapter 9. It's the seventh plague. It's, it's built on that. And then in date, uh, the second trumpet blows, and then a third of the ocean waters are turned to blood. That looks like the, the plague, the first plague that you're going to be found in chapter 7. And then the third trumpet blows. And then there's that plague, instead of just being in the ocean waters, that plague now goes to all the inland waters, all the fresh water. And now that, that that water, it says, is bitter. Bitterness in the scriptures has to do with the judgment of God. And, and now that a third of all the waterways are turned that, you're going to see that, that people are now dying. And the fourth trumpet blows and darkness ensues, replicating the ninth plague found in Exodus chapter 10. And the purpose of all of these are to demonstrate that God is in control over creation. Even creation is going to obey. God, God is using creation itself to bring judgment upon humanity. And John goes on to say this in, in chapter 8, verse 13, in the transition. This, this is the hinge point out of, out of the first four trumpets into the, the next three. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So the first four happen real fast. The next three happen much slower. And there's much more detail given about five, six, and seven. Far more detail about what happens in those moments. But I would just want to start, I'm going to give you something just for free. If, if you read about an eagle in the book of Revelation and somebody comes to you and says, that represents the United States of America, run the other way. <laughs> okay. Now, I'm, I, I'll be like, well, I, like we're, 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 where there's opinion, we've been telling you there's opinion, where, where there's a, a multiple things in the, in the text this week, there's different views and there's varying views, and we're just going to be right up front. Hey, there's varying views, but if somebody comes to me and they say the United States is in the book of Revelation, I'm going to say, you do not know what you are talking about, because they do not know what they are talking about. Why? Every generation can point to these events and think about throughout history how many different nations had an eagle as a symbol of their nation. The quickest one to the, to the audience in which John is writing is the nation of Rome, the Roman Empire. They would have been connecting the dots. Oh, he's talking about Rome right there, except maybe he's not. It's just 
Who's the eagle? It stands for the grandeur, power, and, and, and it's the messenger of judgment. And, and what we're supposed to get isn't about who the eagle is. It's the message that he has. And the message is, whoa, whoa, whoa. And if we've been reading along, we're going, okay, wait, that, that three-time repetition? Oh, I've heard that before. Only it was in the polar opposite direction. It came across as holy, holy, holy. We're supposed to pick that up as we read the story and go, it's not about who the eagle is, it's about the message that he brings. And he's bringing now what in the Old Testament is called a woe oracle. It's a woe prophecy that's throughout the Old Testament. And this is the only time that we're going to see it in the book of Revelation. Woe, woe, woe in the next three trumpets. In case you thought the first four were bad, just wait because it's about to get worse. The next three trumpet judgments are, are unique is that they're, they're only judgments that are preceded by this word, woe. So the fifth trumpet blows. And as the fifth trumpet blows, what we see is now it goes from all of creation into the realm of the demonic. Okay, this is now going into the spiritual realm. It's now transitioned from the, the created world. And now the spiritual realm is also a created world. But from what we see, the created earth kind of stuff, into the spiritual realm, and what we see is some crazy supernatural things happening. We see locust scorpions from the pit of hell and that, that heap torture okay, on earth dwellers for five months. And we're like, okay, what's this all about? Well, do you know anybody who worships demons? You might. okay? I, I don't know anybody who knowingly worship demons. I don't know anybody in a personal kind of way who worships the demonic, as far as I know. And yet, what we have to embrace is this, that everyone who embraces the world system has embraced worshiping the demonic, whether they know it or not. They may not know it. If you are worshiping the world's system, you have engaged the demonic, whether or not you know it. And here's what I'm talking about. If, if a person isn't embraced the, the truth of who Jesus is and turned to following Christ and they have new life in Christ, they are part of the world system and everything in the world system is ruled currently by the demonic. And that means it could be another religion. It's the demonic. Okay? Just... I know this is really hard to hear, but it's just the truth. It is the demonic. Every other world religion besides those that are of the scriptures is controlled by the world system. And the world system is controlled by the demonic. And what we see is that you can't trust the world system. That's the point. The point is, you can't trust the world system because it's controlled by the demonic. What we see here is they'll even attack the people that worship them. That, that they'll swing around and you'll be like, okay, they don't even know that they're worshiping him, but they're going to come and bring God's judgment upon the very people who worship them. And then the sixth trumpet brings the same thing. We see that cosmic forces cause war on their own people, and a third of the people of the earth are killed. This is scary stuff, except for those who are in Christ. 
For those who are in Christ, it's, it's not scary because we're secure in, in Jesus. But if we're not, it's just saying you can't trust the world's system. So right now, think about all the things in the world that people put their trust in. Your employer. You, 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 we already mentioned your 401k, and we know that can't be trusted. We, we, we talked about what, what are the things, maybe your family or or, or what are the, the, the relationships that you have in your world? What is it that you're putting your confidence in? And what the point of the revelation is, none of it can be trusted. Nothing that the world offers is going to last forever. And so the first six judgments conclude with this. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. People have to choose. Are they going to embrace the world system or are they going to embrace God's way? Are they going to embrace what the world has to say or are they going to embrace Jesus? And what we see here demonstrated is even after all of this is poured out, people still do not turn from their ways. Even with Jesus' judgment, people are reluctant to turn to him. They're reluctant. That's what we see, that, that Jesus has brought these first six judgments, and people are still like, I'm going to keep that at a distance. I'm not going to turn. This is a story that's as old as humanity, where, where from the very beginning of the book of Genesis, remember, the first sin that the first people created was what? I mean, for, committed was what? That, that I will be my own God. I'll be the God of me. I will decide what's right for me. I will decide what works for me. I will decide with how I then will live. These judgments revealed in these first six trumpets are clear. God is giving people an opportunity to turn to him. The word is repentance. It means that we would turn from going in one direction and go in another direction, that we would turn from following ourselves to going, I can never there's no way that I could ever approach a perfect God because I am imperfect and I believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God as we've seen throughout the book of Revelation that takes away the sin of the world that John writes about back in his gospel that, that it's just Jesus alone that I need to trust in order that I might have life forever, what I was created to have, life forever with God. God is giving people an opportunity to turn to him. And this is where we fit into God's story. As we move into chapter 10, there's a, a break in the action. There's an interlude. We see this in all of these. There's like this little interpart. And, and verse, I mean, chapter 10 brings, starts with this. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs were like pillars of fire. If you're familiar with the scriptures, all of a sudden you're beginning to pick things up and you're supposed to remember where, where things start to maybe connect in your mind and you're like, oh, I remember in the Old Testament as God led the children of Israel into the wilderness, they were led by a cloud, they were led by fire. You're supposed to connect those dots because John's original audience would have connected the dots. 
This sounds like God. And this messenger comes. He had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a, like a lion roaring. Once again, we've already heard this in the story. This is supposed to sound familiar. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but in the days of the trumpet call, of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Hopefully, as you read that, that you're familiar enough to go, okay, I'm, 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 I'm sensing things. Who's, who's the one who created everything? Who's the one who created the heaven and what's in them? Who's the one who created the earth? Yeah, God, but more specifically, we've told you over and over this year that when we talk about God, the creator, it's Jesus. When we talk about the one who created everything, it's Jesus. This is the revelation of Jesus. And so Jesus has sent this messenger. Now, We've talked about symbolic language is meant to be symbolic. And what can be really hard about the book of Revelation is we can jump in and jump out of the, the symbolic. In other words, the, the things in the book of Revelation that seem realistic, we go, oh, that's real. And then the thing that seems crazy, like a four-headed creature, that seems crazy. That must be a symbol. And so we can jump in and out of it. And here what you have is a vision. Remember, visions are visions. It's not like, hey, this is a new reality that's been shown, that God is showing a symbolic vision to the prophet that we call John. He's, a, he's an Old Testament prophet who shows up in the New Testament, and, and he's getting a vision, just like the visions that we see in the Old Testament, and he's just recording this incredible vision that he's seeing. And so this giant angel comes and stands on a globe, one foot on the sea, one foot on the earth. And what's it mean? Once again, God is ruling over it all. And the message that he begins, there are people who disagree. Some people would say that this, this angel is, is Jesus himself. I, I don't think the argument for that is compelling. I think Jesus has commissioned this angel to go and give his message. And he stands with the authority of Christ over all the earth. And he begins to deliver this message. And what's the message? That the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. The, it is interesting that, that, that just like we see in Ezekiel, that this is John's commissioning as a prophet as he takes the scroll and eats it, that he would deliver God's message, the message that God has for God's people, that he's going to ingest it and then he's going to say it. In chapter 11, it begins with this. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. If you're wondering where do we fit in God's story, this is it. This is it. There's those out there who, who are looking for this to be a real temple, that the temple will be reconstructed, and then we know. I'm just not one of them. I think the New Testament is absolutely clear that when, when we talk about the temple from a New Testament 
perspective that it is the body of Christ. That we are now the dwelling place of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. The old temple has been destroyed. It's not coming back because we are now the temple of God. In other words, that John is now measuring the people of God, that we are now the dwelling place of God through the power of the Holy Spirit in us, that, that we are a people to our, who are supposed to be engaged in the mission of God. That it's now through God's people, the church, that we're going to see God at work. And here's what we need to remember. As we're looking to demonstrate the good news of the kingdom of God, reluctance does not change our part in demonstrating who Jesus is. Just because the world is reluctant to embrace Jesus does not change our part in God's story. And it's really important as we look to demonstrate who Jesus is that we would copy Jesus' method. And here's the upside-down kingdom of God. How did Jesus conquer? He died. He died. This is, this is not, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm going to go straight all the way there. I'm going home this way right now. This has not been embraced by the church in America. The church in America says, fight. Fight for your rights. You, did, you deserve better than that. Jesus says, die. Jesus says, die. So here's what's true. Okay, as an American, you have rights. As an American, you have rights. Absolutely. As an American, you have rights. As a Christian, as a follower of Christ, guess what? You have none. Zero. Nada. You know what your right is? Die. You have a right to die. And what we see is the church in America rise up and say, no, I will fight for my rights. I have a right to free speech. I have a right to religious freedom. I have a right. No. You have a right to die and demonstrate the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus died for the people who hate him. I don't know about you, but I don't know about dying for people who hate me. Even in the scriptures we read, like, it's one thing to die for somebody who's your friend. It's one thing to die for a family member. You might do that. But to die for an enemy? No. What we see is, what made the lamb worthy to be worshipped? He was the lamb who was sacrificed, who exchanged his life for, for our lives. Now, if, if we take to heart the message of this book, we have to remember that God's disclosure of his plan to judge evil and save his people frees us to trust him no matter what happens to us. No matter what happens to us. We have, we have to embrace this idea that I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to trust Jesus. And at the core of the story, we have to remember God's mercy is available. God's mercy is available. God's Mercy is available amid judgment. Even though judgment is coming. And we see that at the culmination of these woe judgments. What we're expecting now, we've seen five, demonic, six, 
demonic. Seven, we're expecting, okay, now it's really going to get worse. And it does, only it looks different than what we think it's going to look like. Instead, it looks like this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. The time for the dead to be judged and, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. The ark of his covenant was seen with his people, and that was seen within his people, there were flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavenly hail. And verse 15 is the center of the book of Revelation. The seventh trumpet is the pinnacle of the story. This trumpet reveals that, that ultimately the final woe is what? For all of those who don't embrace the worship of Jesus, that they will suffer the judgment of God, that they will be forever separated from God. But for those who declare God's praise, they'll get to be part of God's kingdom forever and ever. So, so if you highlight, like highlight, star, and circle, verse 15, put an arrow in your margin to it, this is the pinnacle. Worshiping Jesus is the pinnacle of God's story. When it says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, everyone who has life in Christ. Guess what we do at this point? Yeah! Yes! Yeah! Jesus wins. He really does win. And that's not just a reason to put this book away and be like, okay, I guess it doesn't matter. No, it's a motivation. It really matters. Yes. The world's going to hate you in the meantime. Yeah. That's the response for those who are in Christ. It's the encouragement of the book of Revelation. And, and this is what we hold in tension. The worship that we see is motivated by God's coming judgment, that God's going to do what's right. But God's going to do what's right. And you're not Jesus, okay? You're not Jesus. You're a follower of Jesus. And you get to demonstrate the good news of the kingdom of God and trust that Jesus at the right time is going to bring judgment. And when that happens, we're going to be part of that chorus in heaven saying, you're worthy. What? You're the worthy judge. And because you're the worthy judge, we're going to worship you yet again. We're going to keep worshiping you. As a follower of Jesus, my part in the judgment of Jesus is to demonstrate the good news of the kingdom of God. And so as you take a look this week at the next steps, the, the, the first one is live it out. Every week in this series, we're asking you to engage the live it out. Why? If you do it just a little bit, just a little bit, you're going to get so much more out of it. The second one is a question to ask yourself before you step into the day. Where do I need to demonstrate mercy to someone who needs it? This is God's story. God demonstrates mercy to people who deserve judgment. For people who turn to him, he demonstrates mercy. And if we're going to demonstrate the good news of the kingdom of God, we have to demonstrate mercy in our world. But then the last one, the last one is, is also for you to start every day, that you would ask Jesus, what needs to die in me? 
As I step into today, Jesus, would you give me one thing that, that I need to kill? It needs to die in me. What? And it may be the same thing every day. And this is actually the question we're gonna focus on right now. And we're gonna ask the Holy Spirit to bring to mind, what's the thing as I look to demonstrate the good news of the kingdom of God that I need to take before the lamb that I would say, that needs to be put to death. Now, I don't know about you, that there's things I think I've put to death. I think I've crucified them. I think that I have laid them down. And all of a sudden, it comes climbing back up. I'm not dead yet. I got to go back and go, nope, that thing has to die in me. I've told you before, when I'm up here, I- I'm preaching to me. You think that, th- that this is me. I, I want my rights. I-, I want my things my way. I want things to happen. I want my, I want my life to be easy. I hate adversity. I want things to go smooth. There's some stuff that has to die in me. If that's how I'm thinking, there's some stuff that has to be crucified. And so in this moment, what we're going to ask is that God would bring it to mind. And so we're going to ask right now, Jesus, would you bring to mind for each of us in a very personal kind of way what needs to die in me? If you feel like God has, has given you something in that moment, I want to encourage you to write it down and, and, and step into this week with it, that you would write it in your an app on your phone, write it on your bulletin, so that as you step into this week, you'd continue to ask, Jesus, what's it look like for me to put that to death in me? What's it look like for me to step into that? What's it look like for me to crucify that in me? But now what we're going to do is we're going to worship the lamb who's worthy of our worship, the God who is absolutely the only one who is worthy of our worship. He has his name. His name is Jesus. I'm gonna invite you to stand. Lord Jesus, even in our worship, we we do not have the ability to worship you without your help. So in this moment, would your Holy Spirit inspire our praise?